Father, I thank you for your church, as we're going to talk today, the diversity of your church in which you call us all from very, very different places, very different lives, very different backgrounds and settings to now be one body in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as I pray that as we have a lot of moving parts here at our church right now, from family ministries to uh, to, to, to what's going on with our shifting service times, to our Cactus Campus, to our various venues, all the things going on, that, Father, you would continue to protect us and provide for us and build us up in unity. Speak to us through your word right now, Father. We have a complex passage before us, but help us understand it rightly. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So if there is uh, one thing that I've realized about the Christian church in almost 30, well, more than 30 years of being a Christian and about 25 years of being a pastor, it's this, and that is that sometimes in church things get real complicated real fast. You ever notice that about church? Things can get real complicated and real fast. So I remember I became a Christian back in 1981, and, and back then, you know, contemporary music in the church was when you brought out a piano and an acoustic guitar. That was contemporary music. And then, as many of you noticed, throughout the 90s, as the church got more into rock music and contemporary music, we started bickering about what instruments to use and what songs to sing and how loud it should be. And before you know it, we had traditional music and blended music and contemporary music, and now we have this thing called post-contemporary music, whatever that is. And things got real complicated real fast when it came to worship music. Or how about doctrinal issues? When I first became a Christian, I became a Christian because somebody explained to me that Jesus Christ died on a cross for my sins, that he rose again on the third day, and to follow him. And I thought, I'm in. And they said, the Bible is your guide. Let that guide you. And I thought, I'm in. And then I realized that we have charismatic and non-charismatic Christians. We have people that are into the end times issues. We have arguments over the role of women in ministry. We have Calvinists and Arminians. And even though we all agree on the resurrection and the Bible is one word from God, but we have all this complexity theologically. And I thought, boy, things can get complex in church. And then we started talking about political and cultural issues. Democrat versus Republican, public versus private school, views on war, social issues such as poverty and immigration, and things got real complicated real fast. I'm not done yet. Then we started talking about lifestyle issues. I mean, this one just took the cake. Like, should you go to certain movies? Should you drink or not? What kind of language should you use? What should you wear? What shouldn't you wear? What about body art, body piercings, hairstyles? Who to hang with? Who not to hang with? And I thought, man, these Christians are awfully intense people. And before you know it, things get real complicated, real fast. And then you got leadership issues. Like, everybody weighs in on that. The decisions that the pastor makes, how many people are involved in decisions, whether you even like the pastor or not. Things get real complicated real fast. And then you got directional issues. You getting tired yet? Directional issues. New programs and how to start them. Old programs and how to give them a decent burial. When you should win. When you, sh when you should build or when you shouldn't build. But when you should mess with the mission statement. When you should declare your values. And before you know it, things get real complicated real fast. Uh, not anymore, but in the earlier days, an unknowing layperson would ask me every now and then, what is it that you guys do throughout the week? 
I mean, I know Sunday is a busy day for you, but what else buys up your time? And I would smile and think to myself, if you only knew, because it's not just pastoral care, prayer meetings, Bible studies, committee meetings, home visits, and counseling. Those are the easy things. No, it's trying to keep everything going and growing, everything held together in the midst of a tremendous amount of complexity that seems to come in to Christ's church on a regular basis. And there's good reason for this. I would submit to you that church is one of the very few organisms on planet Earth that tries to bring an extremely diverse group of people together, people from across socioeconomic lines, racial lines, cultural lines, and even affinity lines, and they try to do so without killing it in the process. In other words, you will not find a more diverse group of people within a particular culture than the church. It's just that things can get real complicated real fast. And none of this would be so bad if it was not for one key threat that occurs when things start to get complex for God's church, and it's the threat of disunity. Disunity. And it just makes sense that when things get complex, when you have competing agendas within any organization, especially the church, it's ripe for disunity. And yet when you think about it, the reason that that is such a threat is because the church depends on unity. And it depends on like-mindedness as the fuel for moving ahead as one body. None of us are paid except a few of us pastors. All of us are here voluntarily. All of us are here because we've been changed by Jesus Christ or we're seeking Jesus Christ. But we're a very diverse group of people. And the unity that we have is absolutely critical. This is why Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, had as its ma his major theme the unity of God's people in his prayer because he himself knew that it is this unity that makes or breaks the power and potency of the church that he came to set up. And if you can latch on to this, and if you care about this at all, and I hope you do, then you're ready to go into the next leg of the New Testament book of Galatians, the book we're studying this spring and summer and fall here at Scottsdale Bible, because as we move into chapter 2 this morning, this is precisely the issue that the Apostle Paul was dealing with as he was helping these young and burgeoning churches in the area of Galatia. Let me give you a little bit of the background. They were doing so well in so many ways. These churches that are now in modern-day Turkey had come to faith in Christ and Him alone for eternal life. They were flying high in their newfound walk with the Lord. They were growing and reaching out to lots of interested seekers. They were meeting regularly for worship and teaching and fellowship and service, and things were looking really up. But behind the scenes, as can happen today, there was a brewing complexity having to do with doctrinal, lifestyle, cultural, and personality issues that were threatening to divide these churches from within. And if not addressed, it wasn't going to go away over time. Many ways it's like that in life. No, it was going to get worse over time. And so Paul needed to address these issues as he was writing to the churches in Galatia. Don't miss this. They needed unity in the midst of a very potential disunity. They needed to find common ground in the midst of the shifting ground that they were now standing on. 
And so let's read about it, as well as the solution that God gives for how to find unity in the midst of increasing complexity that we even find today. I'm going to be reading from Galatians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, and reading up through verse 14. If you didn't bring a Bible, it's on the notes that are in front of you, cactus and venue, it's on the notes that are in front of you, as well as always we'll put the scripture here on the screen. So follow along as I read this for you. Paul the Apostle says, Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised works also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised." Only they asked that we remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Before, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And you all understand exactly what all that means, right? (laughs) Some of you are going, what? What is all this about? If your head is spinning right now, it's really okay. I mean, talk about complexity. In just these 14 verses that I just read, check this out, Paul mentions six primary characters, himself, Barnabas, Titus, Peter, James, and John, as well as seven different groups of people. He mentions himself and his companions, the Jerusalem leaders, the Jews, also called the circumcised, the Gentiles, called the uncircumcised, the infiltrators, the poor, and the Galatians. And so this is a very, very complex passage, and that's part of the point, talking about the complexity of these local churches 2,000 years ago that were just starting out. And so as we established earlier, when you add all this together and then factor in the theological, cultural, lifestyle, and personality differences, things get real complex real fast, and unity can become threatened. And that's what you're feeling in this passage here. 
And so with this setup and understanding, let's just cut right to the quick and let me give you what I believe is the main point of this passage here on how to find unity, and it's simply this. And that is that unity comes through a common faith in Jesus Christ that flows from shared grace. Let me repeat that. We're going to flush it out here today, but you've got to latch on to this. Unity comes through a common faith in Jesus Christ that flows from shared grace. Now, to see this in all of its clarity, I need you to notice with me two key things happening in this autobiographical journey that Paul lays out here. I need you to see the problem that he outlines that I'm going to submit to you is the same problem you and I have today in many ways, and then the pathway to unity that God declares for us. So the problem, and then the pathway out of the problem. First, notice with me the problem that he outlines, and it is simply this, and that is that you have one gospel with at least, in this case, two very different expressions. That's the problem he's laying out here. You got one gospel, gospel with two very different expressions. And so look again at verses 5 if you're looking at your own Bible or in your notes there, and, and you'll see the problem outlined. Paul's been a believer now for about 14 years, so he's no longer a novice, but now a veteran follower of Christ. And you'll notice that he's traveling here with Barnabas and Titus. And though some of you might not know who Barnabas and Titus are, it's kind of important for the problem at hand. Titus, he says, is a Greek, which means that he wasn't born Jewish. He never had a Jewish background, but now he's a follower of Jesus. Barnabas, however, is a Cypriot Jew, which means that he was a Jew born on the island of Cyprus, so he was a Jew born in a non-Jewish context and environment. And these three guys, Paul, who is Jewish, Barnabas, who's a Cypriot Jew, and Titus, who's a Greek, are traveling around Galatia there, leading many Gentiles, non-Jewish people, to faith in Christ and teaching them how to walk with God now in a New Testament sort of way as they trust in the risen Jesus. And this is what Paul means when he says, I am proclaiming the gospel among the Gentiles to people from a non-Jewish background. And then Paul makes it very clear in verse 3 that Titus and these Gentiles are not having to have the expression of being circumcised, which was an Old Testament Jewish custom, as part of following Christ. And his logic is simply that Old Testament Jewish laws and customs are not required for being a New Testament Christian. But it doesn't stop there. It gets kind of complicated because there's some in the churches in Galatia who were insisting that the Gentile converts follow Old Testament Jewish laws and customs, and they argued that these were an integral expression of faith found in the Old Testament and even part of the requirement for salvation now that people were coming to follow Jesus. And this is what Paul means when he says in verses 4 and 5, and he kind of tips his hat how he feels about this, or tips his hand, when he says that they were false brothers who slipped in to somehow rob these Gentile Christians of their freedom in Christ and bring them into slavery to the Old Testament law. You see, they wanted the Gentiles to adopt Jewish customs and practices in order to show themselves true followers of Jesus, who, by the way, was Jewish himself. 
And though Paul's going to give us the answer to all of this in a few minutes here, in verses 6 through 10, the problem really is complicated, folks, because though we're going to see the answer lies in how one defines salvation, at the same time, Paul himself was Jewish. And Paul, when he's even writing these words, knows that, that, that he is living out certain aspects of the Jewish law even now as a follower of Jesus. In the book of Acts, it says that Paul had taken a Nazarite vow, which is from Numbers chapter 6 in the Old Testament, where you would grow your hair long as a specific thanksgiving to God. And we know that Peter, James, and John from Acts 15 were following certain dietary restrictions as good Jews and now as followers of Jesus Christ. So we know that the, in the early church that Jewish Christians were living certain aspects of the Old Testament law as part of their faith in Christ. It's just that Paul is going to argue here that salvation is a different thing and that the basis for our unity is not going to be found in any of these things. More on that in a minute. But, but what I need you to see right now is that these first five verses lay out here are two competing groups in play. The Gentiles, who are unsuspecting converts to Christ and have no idea why Old Testament laws and customs should be imposed upon them, but then the Jews, who've also been turned on to Jesus and now simply want to hang on to many of their long-held and meaningful expressions of faith as found in the Old Testament, now as part of their walk with Christ. So you got two very diverse groups of people coming together under one banner, which is Christ, and yet because they bring very different beliefs and customs and practices and lifestyles and traditions, and each believing that they have found God's way, unity is threatened as disunity begins to take hold. And though we're going to get to the solution here in just a minute, I think you and I need to pause and recognize that this isn't just stuff that happened 2,000 years ago. But I would submit to you that this is a very real threat here in the 21st century, even to a church like Scottsdale Bible Church. I mean, we might not argue about Jews and Gentiles anymore because that's not our culture. But as I mentioned earlier in my introduction, we are a middle to upper middle class church and we too have lots of issues as we brought a lot of people together under the banner of Christ. Issues that become big issues that threaten our unity as well. And so consider political and cultural issues. How to vote, what schools to attend, how to raise our kids, what to emphasize and what not to emphasize. What do we do about changing demographics and culture and immigration and the poor? And though some would contend that we shouldn't worry about any of these issues, I disagree. I think many of the issues that I just mentioned that are considered political and cultural issues today are actually moral issues that the Bible speaks on, our kids, our culture, immigration, the poor, and that you and I are going to have differing opinions on these things, and we're going to use the Bible to justify our opinion. It's just that if we're not careful, these things can threaten our unity. Or how about lifestyle issues, drinking, movies, TV shows, tattoos, hairstyles? What is appropriate music to listen to? Should it be country or Western music? I don't know. But these are very real issues in which many of us have serious opinions about. And we haven't even gotten to theology yet, right? 
I mean, when you add in now theology, now the stakes are really high. Let me be really bold here. At SBC, we have those from charismatic backgrounds as well as those from Baptist backgrounds. I'll let you do the research on the difference, but they are marked. We have those who favor a Calvinist reading of the Bible and those who favor a more Arminian reading of the same Bible. We have those who have certain views on Israel and the end times, and then we have those who have very different views on Israel and the end times. And though I myself have particular theological persuasions on most all of these issues, and they tend to collate with how God thinks about them, you can see, <laughs> isn't that the point? That's the point right there, is that you can see how quickly it could lead to various factions within the church. Because you see, in all seriousness, here's the real problem, and tell me if this isn't true. When it comes to all of these issues, and there's a lot more than even the ones I just mentioned, we tend to tie these things very close to our faith in Jesus Christ. And I would contend that that's good and that we can't even help it. I mean, think about the values and opinions that you have come up with on a myriad of things as a follower of Jesus. Most of them have arisen from within your faith. They've arisen since you've become a follower of Jesus, and they are things that you feel rather strongly about. You might even tie salvation sometimes to these things, though I'll get to that in a minute. But these are not bad things. They're good things. It's just that these very good things tend to threaten our unity if we're not careful and if we don't find our unity elsewhere. I'm real reticent to say what I'm about to say, but I actually emailed three elders on Friday night and asked them if I could say it, and they all three signed off on it. So if you don't like what I'm about to say, you can blame the chairman of our board, the vice chairman, and Tim Kimmel. I'll give you his email. <laughs> so here, here's one. And, and, and that is when you can say, I'm just going to use myself as an example here. On, on a very personal level, he, here's me. I, I'm a Calvinist who believes in a literal future for Israel, who feels very strongly that we should care about strangers in our land. I lean more toward lordship salvation than not. I believe that when we vote, we should consider the rights of the unborn, marriage, and religious liberty more than anything else. And I still believe that Nashville is a lot more holy than MTV. That's me. <laughs> And see, cactus and venue, I don't know what happened to you or you, but I knew that about half of you would clap to that. And that's my point. About half of you said, oh, that's so wonderful, I agree with them. The other half, you have your arms crossed and you're going, this isn't funny at all. And I get that. But when I first became a senior pastor back in 1999, after about three months, my wife Kim said to me, she said, this is ironic, you are an equal opportunity offender. She said, just in three months of being a Christian, you've said things that isolate just about everybody, or being a pastor, isolate just about everybody. And, and it's true. I, I mean, if I start to open up, and I can't help it at times, some of the things that I believe and that I even feel strongly about as a follower of Jesus, it, it, it's going to create some discord at times. And so the question becomes, where is our unity found? I mean, I love how some people say it. Actually, I, I hate it when they say it. So they'll say, well, our unity is found in our diversity. Yeah, how's that working for you? 
I and mean, don't you love, that's like a Dr. Phil statement, isn't it? Our unity is found in our diversity. And I go, yeah, well, that's why we have so many people in marriage counseling, and that's why kids rebel, that's why churches struggle. I mean, that sounds good on paper, but, but I'm not sure that really works. No, I think we need something richer than that, and thankfully, Galatians gives it to us. So here is God's pathway to unity, and I'm telling you, if we will live this, it works, and it's point two under your main point, and that is that unity comes through grace that reveals to us that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, and that is the gospel, and this leads to various expressions of freedom. That's exactly where our unity is going to be found. I'm going to suggest you three words here in just a second. Grace, gospel, and freedom. That's where our unity is going to be found. So here's the deal. If each of us can understand and latch on to the overriding reality of grace, and grace as defined as that which saves us through faith alone and Christ alone, and the fact that this grace and gospel will result in all types of expressions of freedom that are not saving faith themselves, but an outpouring of it, I'm telling you, this is the best way to safeguard unity in the midst of all kinds of diversity, whether it be lifestyle, theological, cultural, political, or personal. And I would submit to you that this is exactly what Paul is arguing, what God through Paul is saying to us in Galatians 2. Let me show you what I mean. I want you to look more closely at verses 7 through 9, and as I read this for you again, I'm going to add some interpretive comments here and see if you can pick up on what I believe this passage is saying. He says, beginning at verse 7, on the contrary, meaning this is how we're going to find unity, when they saw that I, Paul, had been entrusted with the gospel, that's key there, entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel, the same gospel, to the circumcised, the Jews who had the Old Testament law, He then says in verse 9, when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. So now you got the gospel and grace. Notice the result halfway through verse 9. They gave the right hand of fellowship, unity, to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised or to the Jews. So don't miss this, folks. Paul is saying that the Jerusalem leaders, Peter, James, and John, perceived the grace that was given to him. We'll define that in just a second here. And that this grace had led to a right understanding of the gospel. Mentioned five times in these 14 verses here, that word gospel. And it was through this and only through this that they were able to overcome the differences between Jew and Gentile, Old Testament and New Testament living. So what does this mean? I suggested to you earlier, you're going to want to latch on to three words that will help you have unity with very, very different Christians around you. And those three words are grace, gospel, and freedom. Grace is the beginning of all of it. Anybody who has had an experience with God's grace that has led to salvation in Christ, the gospel, is somebody who is your brother and sister in Christ. Amen? They are. Even if they're going to have a very, very different expression of their faith in you, they are your brother and sister in Christ whom God wants you to have unity with. 
Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says it this way. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So I don't care if you come from a Calvinist or Arminian persuasion. The reality is, is that both argue that it's grace that saves. They just get there in very different ways. It's grace that saves. And that if it wasn't for God's grace, you would not be a part of the fold. And this is why it's important that it says the Jerusalem leaders perceived the grace that had been given to Paul. And that was the starting point of them receiving him in unity. But it doesn't stop there. It's grace that understands and is responded to the gospel. Mentioned five times here in these 14 verses. And what is the gospel? The key verse in all of Galatians is chapter 2, verse 16. We're going to get to it here when I get back from my, my, my mission trip. Galatians 2, verse 16, it says this, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So that's the gospel. Folks, that's where we find our unity. Faith alone in Christ alone. And as a quick side note, this is where Paul solves the issue for, for the Galatians church. In a very real sense, he says, you know what? Got to tell you something, Jews. The Gentiles have it right on this one. They're the ones who get that it's faith alone in Christ alone. And quite frankly, they don't have to apply the Old Testament law in order to be saved. Because the law reveals sin. The law makes us a, a, aware of God's righteousness. But it doesn't have the power to save. Only Christ has the power to save. And the gospel message is that Christ alone is who can save and that we have to have faith alone in Him. So it's grace, grace that understands and responds to the gospel. Now, now here it is though, but it's also then expressed with a lot of freedom. And I would add a lot of variety. But we're going to get more to this in the fall when we get to Galatians 5. But look at Galatians 5 verses, well, first look at Galatians 2.4. Paul mentions freedom. He says, yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Then look at Galatians 5.1 and 13 up here on the screen. He says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. What's he saying there? Now listen. He's saying that once you understand and experience grace, and once you've embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's going to be a lot of different expressions when it comes to all these issues we've been talking about when it comes to all the types of Christians out there today. As I mentioned earlier, Paul the Apostle didn't give up his Jewish practices. He still kept many of them. So did Peter, James, and John. It's just that they didn't tie them any longer to salvation. They realized that these were things for them that would flow out of their faith. It's just that the Gentiles didn't necessarily have to have the same expressions. And I would argue the same is true today. It's hard for some of us to accept because we tie these expressions so very closely to our faith. And that's a good thing that they're tied to our faith. It's just that if we impose them on everyone else around us, then we're going to have disunity because our unity is not found in having people just like us. It's found in freedom. 
And don't miss, it was from this experienced combination of grace and gospel and freedom that Paul was given the right hand of fellowship by the Jerusalem leaders. And this solved the problem of disunity. In a very real sense, what God is doing here is taking the emphasis off the differences while honoring their legitimacy and placing the emphasis, don't miss this, on shared grace that leads to the same gospel that results in various expressions of freedom. He says, have your focus and unity found on these realities and you will find unity. And so I think the great Methodist missionary E. Stanley Jones nailed it when he once said this, and I quote, he said, talk about what you believe and you have disunity. Talk about who you believe in and you have unity. And let's be clear, it's not that what we believe doesn't matter. Of course it does. Truth matters. But watch this. What you believe points you to who you should believe in. And what God says is, is that it's who you believe in that is the basis for your unity. Amen? Let's take another run at that. It's God who says who you believe in should be the basis of your unity. Amen? Amen. Because that's where our unity is found. It's found in Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, the person who has invaded your life with grace, the person who has revealed his gospel to you, and the person that's in charge of the freedoms that you might have or don't have. And this becomes the beauty then of the church, that you bring together people from all different cultures, all different traditions, all different church backgrounds, complete with lots of different convictions and personalities, and yet they can come together to worship and serve and fellowship and thus show an onlooking world what unity really looks like. But without grace and gospel and freedom, you won't have unity. It'll never work. Heather King is an NPR writer and commentary, commentator. Right there she loses me, an NPR writer and commentator. She's also a recovering alcoholic and a convert to Christianity. And listen to what she wrote on her blog a couple of years ago about her newfound faith in Christ and her experience with the church. I love this. This is great. She says, look up on the screen. She says, my first impulse was to think, my God, I don't want to get sober with these nutcases, meaning people from different politics, taste in music, food, books, or whatever. She says, nothing shatters our egos like worshiping with people we did not handpick. The humiliation of discovering that we are thrown in with extremely unpromising people, people who are broken, misguided, wishy-washy, out for themselves, people who are us. Then she goes on to say, but we don't come to church to be with people who are like us in the way that we want them to be. We come because we have staked our souls on the fact that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that the church is the best place, the only place to be while we all struggle to figure out what that means. We come because we're hard-pressed to say, which is the bigger of two scandals of God, that he loves us or that he loves everyone else? <laughs> and I say, amen. I, I, I say, I get that. I, I've said before, and I, and I don't mean to offend any of you when I say this, here we go, Kim, but, but, I, but I've said for years, I've said that if it wasn't for Jesus, I wouldn't be friends with most of you. And that's okay, because if it wasn't for Jesus, you wouldn't be friends with me either. I mean, the chances of us agreeing on all the different intricacies of life and developing this wonderful bond of affinity are just not very strong. 
And so our unity cannot be found in that. Our unity has to be found in our shared faith in Jesus Christ that has flown from, flowed from grace and gospel and now into freedom. And yet when this works, it's such a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, Lee Eckloff is a pastor up in Vernon Hills, Illinois, where I went to seminary near there, and he's a pastor of an evangelical free church up there. He's a, just a wonderful-hearted pastor. And, and he told his congregation a story of something that happened to him a while back that I thought brought this home. Look up here on the screen. He says, a young friend called me to say she had admitted herself to a psychiatric hospital. While she was there, I visited her when I could. One of my visits was on Good Friday. I asked her if she'd like me to bring communion to her. She said that she would and asked if some of the other hospitalized Christians could join us. On that spring afternoon, five or six of us gathered in her room and shared the sacred meal. He says, I think it was the most meaningful communion service I ever shared. Half a dozen strangers, each scarred by heartache, sitting helpless in a locked ward. He says, yet Jesus was there because we were there as his beloved. He was not only among us, but he was there within us. Even as broken people, we were one with each other. We were strengthened by his presence. We were healed in a way. We were nourished, washed, and rejuvenated because we had communion. And I sit there and say, that's unity in a psychiatric hospital among people who can't even find their way out of their own emotions and thoughts. And they found unity. How? Through Christ. And if that can happen there, then oh, 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 why should we never have unity? Why should we not have unity here in all of our differences? You see, that's the power of grace and gospel and freedom. Our, our, our unity is found in a person, and his name is Jesus. And very quickly, some of you are saying right now, I know how you think. You're thinking, well, Jamie, I get this. I've known for years that unity is found in the gospel. I mean, tell me something I don't already know. Okay, I will. And that is simply this. And that is that I think one of the greatest traps of Christianity today is that you and I are, are, are greatly tempted to find our unity in something else that is good and fine and right in front of us, but not the best place to find our unity. What am I talking about? I call this the trap. You'll notice it on your notes, and it goes like this. We are tempted to believe as Christians that unity comes through a common lifestyle that flows from shared values and beliefs. Now bear with me, because this is so real, and it's so important to the future of our church. When some of you see that phrase right there, share a common lifestyle that flows from shared beliefs and values, your immediate response is, well, that's a good thing, right? And in a sense it is, but I would also submit to you that this is the world's way to find unity, and it's not God's deepest and most profound way to find unity. Let me explain. When you look at the world around you, especially many of the non-Christian groups, I would submit to you that this is how they find their unity. Most world religions find their unity in a common lifestyle that flows from shared beliefs and values, Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, and Buddhist. Most civic organizations like the Kiwanis, the Lions Club, VFW halls, and unions find their unity in a common lifestyle that flows from shared values and beliefs, whether they be union values or war, veteran war values or civic club values. Most of your friendships when you analyze them, are built upon a common lifestyle 
that you have with somebody that shares certain values and beliefs. In other words, you hang out with people that you have an affinity with. Sports clubs, college fraternities and sororities, bars, pool halls, book clubs, all find their unity in a common lifestyle that flows from shared beliefs and values. This is how our world finds unity. It's just that if we try to do this as the Christian church, now don't miss this, it will fail and it will backfire on us. And you ask why? And the answer is simple, because our diversity is too great and so the bond of our unity needs to be stronger than even the common lifestyle and shared theological values and beliefs that you're going to find within the church. And when you look closely, and we don't have time to read the passage, this is, we read it earlier, this is exactly the trap that Peter fell into in verses 11 through 14 of Galatians 2. Uh, we'll put it up here on the screen, I'll show you what I mean. Look at the yellow parts. It says that Peter was eating with the Gentiles... But when the Greeks came, he drew back, or when the Jews came, he drew back and separated himself. Interesting. So what's Peter trying to do? Peter's trying to find unity by saying that when he was with the Gentiles, you know what? You and I got a lot in common. Man, I'll tell you what, we, 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 have, we have same things that we kind of like, and in this food really great, and let's have a meal together. And he was trying to find unity through a common belief and shared values. But then when the Jews came, he kind of separated himself from the Gentiles and said, you know what, I really don't have a lot in common with them, but you and I as Jews, we got a lot in common. And we got these shared values and this shared history, and, and I'm going to eat with you right now. And Paul the Apostle, in his analysis of that, says that this conduct was not in, in step, now here it is, with the truth of the gospel. Why? Because when you try to find your unity simply through a common lifestyle and not through grace, gospel, and freedom, this isn't going to last. And it's not even what God wants. And again, hear me, church. It's not that we as Christians don't have common lifestyles built upon shared values and beliefs. Certainly we do. And they're very meaningful. It's just that these are not the deepest bonds. And in the end of the day, they're not the strongest bonds. Only Jesus Christ and his gospel of grace and freedom could breed the unity that we're looking for. And if we're not careful, if we build our unity only upon common lifestyle based on shared beliefs and values, I would submit to you that's exactly how disunity happens in the church. And I think this is the challenge to Scottsdale Bible Church for the next decade of our church. I shared with a couple of men who prayed for me every Sunday morning when I came in today. I said, I want you to pray because I think this could be one of the more important messages that I ever preach here at Scottsdale Bible. I don't think they had any clue why. But I want to explain to you all right now why. One of the things I love about Scottsdale Bible Church is that we have a lot of ministries in this church. We have tons of Sunday school classes that are really rich in their fellowship and love for each other. We have lots of Bible studies that meet all throughout the community. We have all kinds of service groups that are involved in everything from the inner city to over in Tanzania. But we have all sorts of ministries that we've built in this church. And yet when you look closely, now here it is, most of our ministries, Bible studies, Sunday school classes, and service groups were born out of a common shared value system and lifestyle system that people rallied around, and that's not bad. So, so Bill knows this. Most of our Sunday school classes were built by the fact that I have this particular position on Reformed theology, or I have this particular position on, say, Jewish theology, or I have this particular position on this. And, and, and we allowed people over the last 50 years to kind of scatter within the church. 
to develop ministries and service things and all that based upon particular passions that you might have. And that's not a bad thing. It's just that what's happened over the years is, and this is where we are today, is that there are some within our church right now that are basing the vast majority of their unity on that and not on shared grace, gospel, and freedom. And the reason I know that is true, and this is going to be hard for somebody to believe, is that there's actually some, probably upwards of 5 or 10% of our church, that, that actually are part of groups within our church and they never come to worship with us. They're never a part of the worship environment here because they would argue that their church is within a church at Scottsdale Bible Church. And we've recognized this problem for a while. And what I would simply submit to you is that that is a, at the end of the day, a dangerous place to find unity for any of us because our unity is found in a much broader, much richer way than just somebody who happens to share our particular theological bent or somebody who happens to share our particular lifestyle bent, as we're seeing today, our unity is found in gospel, grace, and freedom. And don't get me wrong on this. I'm glad this is being recorded because I am not suggesting that we lessen our passion about issues or even that we dissolve any group or relationship within the church. I'm not suggesting that. I'm simply suggesting that we need to realize where our unity is most found and that it's not found in just a common lifestyle built upon shared beliefs and values. It's found in a deeper understanding and experience of grace and gospel that results in freedom. And if we can latch onto that, there'll be nothing stopping us as a church. Nothing. I think the only thing that could hinder Scottsdale Bible Church in the next 10 to 20 years, it's really the only thing I fear, is disunity. It really is. Every major church problem you've ever experienced, I know some of you guys come from places that have church problems, every single one, I'm telling you, begins with some form of disunity. That's where Satan strikes the most. He knows that if he can disunify the body of Christ, he's won before he's even started. And that's how important unity is for us. But it begins with all of us today, on this day, marking for each of us that our unity is going to be found nowhere else than in the grace that God has poured out on us that has led us to a right understanding of the gospel that will express itself in a variety of ways that we're going to accept and embrace in each other even if we don't always understand it. I meet up with zany Christians every week. I really do. And you know, 30 years ago when I first became a Christian, I thought, like Heather King did, I can't believe that I'm in relationship with most of you because I don't understand you. You know what has helped me to understand and accept? Grace, gospel, and freedom. That's where I'm at. And I hope you join me as we move together as a church along those lines. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I know this is intense and even somewhat heavy for some of us because we've thrown, thrown some things out on the table. We've recognized even an elephant in the room that is very real in our church, but Lord deserves to be addressed. And it's the issue of where our unity is most found. And Father, if I am reading and understanding Galatians 2 correctly, and I think I am, Lord, your greatest concern is that our unity is found in the grace that you've given and the gospel that you provided and in the freedom that results from that. And that, Lord, maturity as Christians results in understanding that and applying that rightly. And so, God, I pray for all of us here today that if we have fallen into the trap of trying to find our unity more 
in a common affinity or lifestyle with like-minded believers who happen to share our particular bent, that, Lord, we wouldn't get rid of that group or separate from that group, but that, Father, we'd stay a part of that, but then broaden our perspective of where unity is really going to be found. As Ruff Taft said, sung so many years ago, that if you belong to Jesus, you belong to me. They, may that be our mantra, Lord. May that be that which we believe deeply in. God, I thank you that our unity is truly found in a person and that that person is Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. And the whole church says together, amen. amen. God bless you guys.